I was just thinking about uh, about that song as as they were as we were all singing that the section in the book of John that we're in. If you're just joining us, we're in the section of the book of John where Jesus um, has left the upper room where he spent the evening like teaching his disciples, and he went into the Garden of Gethsemane where he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, and then he was taken to the house of the like power behind the power in the nation of Israel, like Annas, the like the high priest. Um, where Peter denied him, and he's walking on this path to his own execution that he, in his sovereignty, is superintending everything that happens. And as I was thinking, as we were singing that song, I was just thinking, like, we can walk following him through the valley of the shadow of death, and we need not fear any evil. Those were, those, there was allusions to Psalm 23 in there that we don't have to want for anything because Jesus, like, walked, like, death and betrayal and torture and like judgment so that we could be free. You know, and that's, and that's the section we're looking at this morning is all of the things that led up to that moment where, where the Son of God like paid for the sins of humanity and, and uh, because of that we don't need to want for anything because he, he provides it all. You know, one of the things we've been seeing in John, and we're in John chapter 18 this morning, the end of John chapter 18, and, and again, if you're new to the Bible, like John is kind of in the last like fifth of your Bible. If you flip through that last half, you'll see some big books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. If, you, if you're flipping through and you see those, just know that John is between Luke and Acts. And, um, and you can find it there. We're in chapter 18, which is the big 18, you know, like the, those are chapter numbers. So, Sorry. Rough morning for me already. So, you know, and where, where we're at this morning, I've already mentioned this, that Jesus was betrayed in the garden. He was taken to the house of Annas, the high priest. John just kind of skips over like the trial before Caiaphas because it didn't even really matter. You know, if you look in John chapter 18, verse, um, verse 24, it says, Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And if you look at verse 28, and they led him, Jesus therefore from Caiaphas, like, they just kind of skipped over it because it didn't really matter because clear back in chapter 11, Caiaphas and all the leaders of the Jews decided we're going to execute this guy. But they, they didn't like the fact that he was able to raise people from the dead. They didn't like the fact that everybody was wanting to follow him. And so they developed a scheme where they were going to execute Jesus, regardless of whether or not he was innocent or not. But the, the bad news is, is right after they make this decision to execute Jesus, there's this thing called the triumphal entry that happened just a week before the events we're going to look at today, where Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy, and all of the nation of Israel is crying out that he is the king of Israel. So there's this moment of, like, the highest point of Jesus' popularity just happened, like, a week prior to this. Not even a week. And the high priests are trying to figure out a way to kill Jesus. And that's what brings us to the house of Pilate, the Roman governor. You know, what we're going to find out is that not only were the, was the nation of Israel complicit in the, in the execution of Jesus, but so was the Roman Empire, even though, according to the Roman Empire, that Jesus was an innocent man. You know, I think it's an important thing for us because there's a couple things that John's going to do as we go through this story of Jesus before Pilate over the next two weeks, because... I um, mean, the next two weeks, we'll have um, 
we're going to see Jesus interacting with Pilate. And we're going to see Pilate. It's kind of a funny story. Because last week, if you, were, if you were here, you remember how, how the story kind of unfolded with a standard plot line, if you were here last week? This week, it doesn't unfold that way. It unfolds from like scene to scene. And the Jews are outside the house. Jesus is inside the house. And Pilate has to walk back and forth between the two. And he's trying to, and it's, 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 it's as if he's being pulled back and forth, trying to figure out, like, what in the world am I going to do with this guy, Jesus? And we have these three scenes. There's actually seven scenes in the whole account because the whole account with Pilate goes clear into chapter 19, verse 15. We'll look at the last, the last part um, next week, Lord willing. But I could only kind of alliterate three. Seven was too many. So we're just going to do these first three. Scene one in verses 28 through 32, you see Pilate brought into the plan by the nation of Israel. In verses 33 through 38, Pilate and Jesus have a conversation and Pilate's brought up to speed about what's going on. And then in scene three, if we get to it this morning, you will see that Pilate brings a proposal. You know, as, and, and I think these things are important for us because what, what John is accomplishing two things in this passage this morning. And one thing he's going to accomplish is he's going to, he's going to be real clear about the fact that Jesus is innocent and that they've condemned an innocent man. And he's innocent before the Roman Empire and, and there was no reason for the Jews to kill him. But the second thing that I think is really important for us this morning is that we, we're going to see Jesus interacting with like the powers of this age. Like the Roman Empire was the, the greatest empire of its day and Pilate was the representative of Caesar himself there in the nation of Israel. And Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is standing face to face with Pilate in his mansion, the Praetorium, standing trial. And as Jesus talks to Pilate, he's going to be revealing some things to us, and he reveals some things to us about, like, his kingdom and how his kingdom interacts with, like, the kingdoms of this world. You know, and for us as Christians and for us just if, as Americans, we're entering into, like, another presidential election cycle, which always brings peace and transparent tra tranquility, <laughs> Right? I mean, more than ever, it seems like, like things are getting crazy. And, and um, it's easy for us to get anxious and distracted and worried and as if this world is spinning out of control. And, you know, I remember in previous presidential elections, like people having the, at least having the luxury of thinking like, hey, if our guy gets elected, everything is going to be fine. I don't think I've talked to anybody that feels that way now. It's like, if, if our guy gets elected, maybe it won't be quite as bad. I mean, is that like cynicism? Like, everybody else feeling that same thing? Like, talking to people, right? Whoever your guy is? But Jesus is going to tell us some things. And actually, oh, for the next four weeks, these first two weeks, again, Lord willing, for these first two weeks, as we look at Jesus standing before Pilate, and two weeks after that, we're going to be talking about and seeing how, as God's people, we're to interact with government, like a Christian view of government and politics. Two of the weeks will be right here as we're going through John, and two of the weeks I'm, I'm going to take a little detour and, and talk a couple weeks just about, like, how do we view human government and how do we view our relationship as a church in this world? And I think it's important for us for a lot of reasons that I'll get into when we get there in a couple weeks. But as of right now, what we do is we have Jesus standing before Pilate 
on trial before him, brought there by the high priests. And, and so please stand, and I'll read the section that we're going to study today, verses 28 through 40, and then I'll pray and we'll get into it together. This is God's word to his church. They led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Pilate, therefore, went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate therefore said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death, that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was about to die. Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What, ha what have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for the, Jesus Christ who willingly offered himself up to die in our place and to bear the judgment that we couldn't bear after living the perfect life that we couldn't live. And um, so, Father, I just ask that you would empower me this morning to be able to speak your word, that, that Jesus would be lifted up high, that, that um, we would love him more because of the things that we see here and trust him more and, and follow you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we get into verses, verses 28 through, you know, this, this first part of this text that Jesus, that the pilot has brought into the plan, what we find out is that, is that they take Jesus from Caiaphas after his trial there, and they take him to the praetorium. Praetorium is a, 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 like a big like Greek word for governor's mansion, you know, is where the governor lived. He had a couple of them, um, one up at Caesarea by the sea, north of Hereaways, and one in Jerusalem, so that he had a place to stay when he was in Jerusalem. So apparently they show up at Pilate's house early in the morning, and Pilate would oftentimes, like, go out and, and conduct business from there. And so they show up at his house, and the irony of all ironies is, is that since the Passover is upon them, that they don't want to go into Pilate's house so that they wouldn't be ceremonially defiled, just so that they can like celebrate the Passover. So, you know, according to their customs, like if they went into a, Jew, a Gentile's house, that they would be made unclean and they would be unclean for a week. And they wanted to be able to celebrate like freedom from slavery in Egypt at the very, while they are acting in complete slavery to their own like treachery and sin and desires. They show up at Pilate's house and they won't go in Apparently, they give Jesus to him, and so Pilate has to go out and find out, like, hey, what has this guy done? And their answer is kind of funny. 
And they say, like, oh, if, if he wasn't an evildoer, if, like, his whole life wasn't about doing evil, we wouldn't be bringing him to you. That, you know, in effect, it's like, hey, dude, you can trust us on this one, right? Like, you can believe us. We're trustworthy religious folks. Pilate's smarter than that. And uh, Pilate gets a lot of bad rap, but at least he doesn't fall for that. And he, he says, well, if, if, if you already have convicted him, he says, go ahead and judge him according to your law. And then they respond with, we are not permitted to put him to death. Now, this is an ironic statement, too. Like, there's a lot of weird things kind of going on in this text behind the scenes. Is I, from the best I could tell from all of my research, I think that was technically true. I think the Jewish people needed to get, like, permission from the Romans before they executed somebody. But it was kind of like the pirate code. It was kind of like more like a guideline than, than a rule, right? <clears throat> About seven of you understood what that reference was to. Do I need to start Jack Sparrowing up here or anything for you all? Like, I wish I could. That was such brilliant. Anyway, back on task, Steve, you know. Uh, because twice before this, I think actually more than twice, they had tried to kill Jesus by stoning him to death, and Jesus gave him the slip. So apparently they weren't too concerned about the rule back then. And shortly after this, um, after Jesus raises from the dead, they stone Stephen to death without the permission of the Roman Empire. So before this and after this, they show a willingness to execute people without, Romans, with, uh, without Rome's like, concern. And I think the concern in their mind was is that we want to get the Romans on board with this because Jesus had just walked into Jerusalem a few days before and everybody was calling him out as king. And he, had, he was at the top of his popularity. And if we just go stone a guy to death at the top of his popularity, that'll probably undermine public perception of us. That's the best I can come up with. And so... Because it's convenient to them and to their treacherous like ends, they say, oh, wait, the law says we can't put anybody to death without your permission. And so then Pilate have, is brought into their plan because they want to be able to like scapegoat the Romans on this whole thing. And it says this in verse 32, that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying which kind of death he was to die. Now think about this for a second. Like the Jews, like hypocrisy and bringing Jesus to, to Pilate, their treachery and invoking the law just because it's convenient for their ends. Because the Jewish law said you, you kill people by stoning them to death. The Romans had a more creative solution. They would crucify people. And so in the mind of God, it actually was really, really important that Jesus be crucified because Jesus himself said back in John chapter, it's on the screen, John chapter 12, he says this, he says, now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Then the next verse says, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So what Jesus is saying is what, what Jesus was saying clear back in John chapter 12 is that is that he he wasn't going to be stoned to death and like buried under the earth. He was going to be lifted up from it. He was going to be nailed to a cross. He was going to be lifted up. And in so doing, he spoke not just about the kind of death, like execution, like crucifixion instead of stoning to death. But he, it said earlier that the rule of this world is going to be cast out. 
that Jesus is going to overthrow like the ruler of this world. He's going to pay the penalty for our sin. He's going to be lifted up from the earth so that he can draw all people to himself. Like the cross becomes this beacon for anyone on this earth who like recognizes their need for Jesus Christ, regardless of your race, regardless of what sins you've committed, regardless of of like what treachery lies in your heart, if you're willing to like repent and turn to Jesus, the cross is this beacon for you that God is calling all people to himself. Nobody is disqualified. The only one that's disqualified is the one who refuses to rely upon him. So think about this for a minute. And this is an important thing for us to understand and like to let, let dwell in our hearts. The treachery of the Jews and what we'll see is Pilate's own weaknesses that leads Jesus to be executed. <clears throat> All of that functioned to accomplish God's plan. None of it, like, there is nothing that anyone can do to stop the plan of God. And Jesus himself, like, by going before Pilate, is securing that, that he would actually be crucified on a cross. He's willingly embracing this path that he has before him and, and actually all of the events that are surrounding it are facilitating that for him. So then we, the, she, the scene shifts and Pilate's brought up to speed. He's brought into the plan in order to kind of like deflect some of the, the animosity from the Jews if things go poorly for them. But then in verse 33, Pilate then leaves them outside and it says, and he entered again into the praetorium. So now he's going back to Jesus and he asks Jesus this question, are you king of the Jews? which is a pretty significant question coming from like the representative of Caesar himself. Are you the king of this nation that I'm like governor over? And Jesus' question is interesting. He says, are you asking this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? It's like, where's the question coming from, Pilate? It's kind of funny, like Jesus is the one on trial, but then he just turns around and starts questioning Pilate. Where's, where's your question coming from? Are you actually interested or is, are you just repeating what other people have told you? Pilate's response kind of shows his, his hard attitude. Verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered it up to me, delivered you up to me. What have you done? Like, I don't care about your Jewish stuff, Pilate's saying. But they're accusing you of claiming to be king. They're bringing you before me, so tell me what you've done. And then here's Jesus' statement, and it's, it's important statements for us. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. That's a statement like laden with like meaning. Jesus, and he's, he's speaking about the nature of his kingdom and the origin of his kingdom. And I think you will see more about the origin of his kingdom next week. We're going to talk, touch on both of them and the nature of his, mostly the nature of his kingdom this week. But he's saying, it's not of this world. It, it doesn't come from this world's system. It doesn't come from this world's power. It's not, it's not built on the principles of this world. It's completely somewhere else. It's a, it's a spiritual kingdom. Now, give me some grace on this word. A spiritual kingdom, not a like physical one. And when I say that, don't misunderstand me. Because as Americans, we're like well-versed in the establishment clause, the separation of church and state, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? And like oftentimes it's easy for us to think that, that, oh, Christ, this is not what he's saying. Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. 
that's like private and personal and spiritual and has to do with my soul. And the United States, or in this case, the Roman Empire, is the, the, the real physical kingdom that like kind of really affects the way I live. And that we just need to keep the two separated and I'll have my own personal spiritual life over here under Jesus' kingdom and then I'll have my, I'll have my uh, physical life that, as an American that really matters. You guys know what I'm talking about? And I think we often do that. We, we personalize and spiritualize our, like, and, and separate our lives into two parts. We have our spiritual life and our physical life, and, and we don't let those two things merge. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't operate by the same principles and come from this world and all of those things. In fact, he'll say this explicitly in chapter 19. Like, my authority comes from God himself. He's not saying, my spiritual kingdom's here and Rome's physical kingdom is there. He's saying, Rome's physical kingdom is down here. And my kingdom is up here. And I rule over everything, including you, Pilate. I am the sovereign one. In fact, he says that. Look ahead. Spoiler alert for next week. Verse 11 of chapter 19. Or just start at verse 10. Pilate therefore said to him, you do, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. What he's saying to Pilate is that as great as the Roman Empire is, my kingdom like supersedes that. My kingdom is greater. It, it, it rules over all nations. I am the sovereign one. You might want to think it through, Pilate. But Pilate doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. You'll see, like, Pilate starts to put everything together in chapter 19, but here he doesn't get it. He's like, whatever. If, as long as you have your own personal spiritual kingdom that doesn't, like, bother Caesar, I'm fine with that. Same thing's true today, right? As long as you keep your faith to yourself, like, we're all going to be good, tolerant people, and as long as you don't, like, claim that Jesus has any authority over everybody else, Pilate's kind of in that same boat. He doesn't see any problem with Jesus' own little personal spiritual kingdom because he can't imagine any kingdom that's greater than Rome. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Then he says this, verse 36, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Yeah, the second thing he's saying is not only is his kingdom the one that supersedes all other kingdoms, but that his kingdom is one that doesn't, like, isn't achieved through human power. He says, if, if it was, my, my servants would be fighting. It's interesting. He doesn't use the word disciples there. He uses the word like servants or officers. If I was like any other king, I would have an army and I would have officers and they would be fighting so that, and this is interesting, I would not be delivered over to the Jews. The Jews had already captured him, had given him to Pilate and wanted Pilate to give them permission to, to crucify him. Jesus knows exactly where the story is going. But what he's telling Pilate is, you know what? My kingdom is greater than all others, and it is not established through human power and scheming and efforts. It's really important for us 
in, our, in, in like democratic America. That we need to understand this. Ultimately, the kingdom of God is not established through human power. Whether that's military power, whether that's elections, whether that's getting the right guy in office, because every single nation, at the end of the day, rises up against God and against Christ. Psalm, Psalm 2 is clear about that. Now, I'm going to have another disclaimer of what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in the political process, right? As, like, the, the scriptures talk about this too, like in, in um, where is it, in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 29, 7, um, what's going on in Jeremiah 29 is that the nation of Israel had been like led captive into the nations. They were exiles in the land of Babylon. And, and the people, the, the false prophets in Babylon were telling the nation of Israel, don't worry about it. It's only going to be a short time and then we're going to be out of here. So don't worry about Babylon at all. Just ha- hang out for like a year or two and then we're gone. That wasn't the reality. And this is what God tells the nation of Israel, one of the things that he tells the nation of Israel, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will have welfare. And the Bible uses this exile language all through the New Testament to talk about like who we are as people of God, that as Christians, we have dual citizenship. We're citizens of Christ's kingdom and we find ourselves in exile in this world. And I think these words to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah's day apply to us as well. We should seek the welfare of the city or the country that we find ourselves in exile because its welfare is our own. So out of love for our neighbor, we should be like involved in politics. We should be seeking to like see righteous laws established in our land. We should seeking to see justice happen to every single man, woman, and child that lives in America in a, in a way that like, honors them as like, image bearers of God. But we can't let politics take an improper place because ultimately, as good as, even if you could make every law as good as you could do it, like, it's not going to be the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God doesn't come through human power. It doesn't come through human agency. It, it isn't manifested in any like, existing earthly kingdom that's going to like, exist until Jesus comes and establishes his, his own. He's the only one that's going to rule with true righteousness and true justice. But in the, in the interim, we should seek to be like involved in our system and seek to see justice and righteousness established. But I skipped over a verse I want to go back to in Daniel chapter 4. You know, as we were talking about, as we were talking about how Christ rules over all things, you know, the kingdom of God preceded the Roman Empire Hundreds of years before, we have this. We have Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the Babylonian Empire. He was he was the greatest empire of the day, and the Babylonian Empire fell to the the Persians. The Assyrians fell to the Babylonians. The Persians, the Babylonians fell to the Persians. The Persians fell to the Greeks. The Greeks fell to the Romans. The Romans fell to the barbarians, and and it goes on and on and on and on. Right? No matter how great the kingdom is, it will one day fall until the last one falls to Jesus Christ, right? But this is what 
This is what Nebuchadnezzar learned. There, God had like caused him to go crazy and says that he ran around out in the woods just eating like grass like a cow and he got really long hair and I don't know, weird stuff. You can read it back in Daniel 4. But this is the conclusion. It says, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His is the only one that will stand. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Do you hear what Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of the earth over the greatest empire is saying? Is like, I am like counted as nothing before this God. His kingdom is the one that's going to endure forever and ever and ever and ever to all generations, and he does what he wants. He does according to his will. And no one can thwart his hand. No one can say to him, like, what have you done? Because his kingdom is not of this world. We even see that in Jesus. Even as he's, like, going to his death, he's the one orchestrating events to get him there. His kingdom is established. This goes on. At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to, added to me. Now listen to Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That was Nebuchadnezzar the king of the Babylonian empire. All his ways are true. All his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And if you're here and you are at all like anxious about like all of the political craziness that's going on around us, write these verses down. He does according to his will and all the hosts of heaven. No one can thwart his hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And so when Jesus is standing before Pilate, Jesus isn't like at all worried. When he says, my kingdom is not of this realm. If it was, my servants would be fighting. We could overthrow you in a heartbeat, Pilate. But as it is, my kingdom's not. It's not brought about. It doesn't come with the same values as the earthly kingdoms. It isn't brought about by the same means as the earthly kingdom. I'm able to accomplish everything I want to accomplish in this world. You know, as we think about that, that it's not brought about by human means, I think, I think, like, I think it's easy for our hearts to, like, reveal to us, like, maybe a change in pers like a, a misaligned perspective. Because when we think, like again, like there's this, weird, there's this weird tension that we have to live in as Christians, like holding two things like completely true. God is completely working his purposes in this world and not one of them will like be thwarted. No one can thwart his hand. And it's also true that we should be working to see justice established in our land for everybody. And I'll talk more about what that means in the coming weeks. 
And we should give ourselves to that. We should care deeply about that. We should seek to win in those things. But we need to do it with the right attitude. Because if we, if we like resort to the ridicule and the... What are some of the verbs that come to mind with the strategies of how to like get your way across in America today? Anybody? I'm having a brain freeze. Slander, good. What else? Outrage. What did I hear? Gaslighting. Like, what else? Vitriol. What does vitriol mean? It's what? Nasty words. That's better for me. Vitriol. Yeah. I mean, it's true, right? I mean, that's all we see. Like Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage? That's all that's around us is outrage and rage, right? I mean, so little is like gentleness and respect and persuasion and humble listening to the other person and seeking to understand where they're coming from. And maybe, because maybe, just maybe, me and my political party don't know everything. Maybe. In fact, like Jonathan Lehman, he's a, he's a pastor at a church, uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which is, according to his book, like five or six blocks, I can't remember, from the Capitol in Washington, D.C. And um, because his church is right by the Capitol building, it's been there for a long time, um, they have people from both political parties that attend their church. I mean, it is a solid, like, church. In fact, like, those guys are, like, just as much committed to the scriptures and beyond. Like, it's hard, it's hard for me to say people are beyond as committed to the scriptures as I am because I hold, like, deeply to them. But these guys, like, love Jesus, love his word. They're, and this is what Jonathan Lehman says about some of these things. He says this. He says, as he's talking about, like, and he wrote this in 20... 17, I think. Maybe it was 2016. But he's talking about this, the, the strategies that we use to accomplish the, our political things. And he says, so, so are we quick to listen and slow to speak? So the scriptures would say, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Can we show respect in debates? One sign that you identify more with your ideological tribe than you do with Jesus is that you cannot hear what's good when it comes from another tribe. You assume that people on the other side of the aisle, you assume that everything that people on the other side of the aisle say must be wrong. Did I typo in there, or does that make sense? It didn't make sense when I read it. Okay. What he's saying is like if you if you have the inability to kind of see that maybe some of those people that you disagree with might have something to say that you could learn from, maybe you're being more persuaded by your political ideologies than you are from the scriptures because the scriptures, I don't think like the, the life that Jesus calls us to as his people fits neatly in, in any of our existing ideological tribes. And again, we'll talk more about that in weeks to come. Feel free to email me your, I'll give you my real email address this time because I'm sincere. <laughs> Most of the time I'm not sincere when I want your questions, but uh, I'm always sincere, but sometimes I use a joke, steve at creeksidemac.com, just Steve. Um, not Steve M or Steve some other thing you want to put on there. Um, just Steve at creeksidemac.com. 
But what Jonathan Lehman is saying is, is, is this, is that he acknowledges this, that our greatest allegiance needs to be to Jesus, our greatest trust needs to be in Jesus, and Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world, and if it, because if it was, I would just use the same strategies as everybody else. They would be fighting, and we might not draw swords today, but the vitriol with which we, like, communicate is just as bad. It's just as bad. You know, and then Jesus then, I mean, then Pilate then begins to ask directly about Jesus' identity in verse 37. Pilate says, therefore, to him, so you are a king. My translation has a question mark there. There's no punctuation in the original language. It could be a statement. I think it's probably a statement. Uh, Pilate therefore said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. And for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So there's a couple of things that Jesus is telling Pilate here that, again, I don't think Pilate grasps the full extent of it, and he'll start to put it together in, in next week's text. But the first thing he says, you're right, I am a king. I'm, a, I'm the king of this, of this kingdom that's not of this world, that comes from above, that has all authority over everything. That's me. I am a king. And he says, for this reason I have been born, and for this reason I have come into this world. I think Pilate thinks those are the same thing. Initially, what Pilate hears is like Jesus just repeating himself like a pastor does on Sunday morning, right? I've come into this world, I've been born, same thing. But in Jesus' mind, it's not the same thing. I have been born as a human through the Virgin Mary to live this perfect life for people so that I can be offered up as a perfect sacrifice to them and... I have come into this world. I pre-existed it. In fact, John is really clear about that in, in, as he opens the book. In John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he says this. He says, There was the true light, which is talking about Jesus, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So what Jesus is telling Pilate is like, you know what, Pilate? Like, you're right. I am a king. I was born. And more than that, I came into this world from eternity past. And I am the light of the world. So there in Pilate's mansion stands the creator of the universe on trial before just a mere weak human. And his own, the chief priests and the Jews, didn't receive him. And they turned him over to the Roman Empire to be killed. For this reason, I've been born here at Pilate, and I've come into this world. And then he talks about how his kingdom does come. He says, I've come into this world to bear witness to the truth. And we'll see this unfold in the pages of the New Testament, that, that God's kingdom advances through the truth of his word. As people like, he, Jesus mediates his rule through his word as people like learn to live in obedience to it and in submission to it. But people are freed from the kingdom of darkness and made part of the kingdom of his beloved son through the word of the gospel. He has come into this world to bear witness to the truth. And then he says something about us and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. 
Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. And this has happened over and over and over and over again in John. And, and if you've been with us in, in our study of John, you'll remember this. But Jesus is always inverting kind of what we assume to be true about, the, about how people come to believe in Jesus. And back in John 6, he says, like, oh, the, the ones that the Father gives me are the ones that believe in me. Back in John 8, the ones that are like sons of the Father are the ones that believe in me. In John 10, the ones that are his sheep are the ones that believe in me. And here he says, the ones that are of the truth, that are born of the truth, that, that whose God's truth resides upon them are the ones that hear me. What he's saying is that, what he's saying is that like God is at work in this world and he's bringing my people to me to believe and like none of your plans are going to upset it, Pilate or the chief priest. In fact, they're just going to fulfill it. He who is of the truth, hears my voice. And then Pilate responds to him, what is truth? And Pilate is like a modern 21st century American. Right? What is truth? Everything's relative. All that I have is what I can like somehow reason in on my own. I can't rely on like some dusty old book or some old gray-haired preacher or, or some like Right? There's no such thing as truth. I just define it myself. It's kind of the posture that Herod has. What is truth? Clearly, he wasn't of the truth because he didn't hear Jesus' voice. But what we're going to see as it unfolds in chapter 19 by, by Herod like unmooring himself from the truth, he's simply left to whatever limited strength he has as the winds of like public opinion and the hatred of the crowd and the animosity and treachery of the Jews like blow against him. And even though repeatedly he's going to say Jesus is innocent, he ends up crucifying him. You know, if you, if you abandon like this idea of truth like Pilate is doing here, you're just left to like blow wherever like the winds of like public opinion take you. But Jesus has something so much more for them. Like, listen to what Jesus says in John 14, 6. He was telling his disciples that this very night, he said this to his disciples. Jesus said to him, I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Like, Jesus is telling Pilate, like, you know what? The, thing, the truth you need to understand, Pilate, is who I really am. And Pilate, by discarding him, discards Jesus, discards any hope of, of salvation for himself. Over in John 8, 31 and 32, listen to what he says, uh, what he says about truth back there. This is a few, a few uh, months earlier. I think I have that on the screen, don't I? No, oh, it didn't sync. I'll read it. Or you can flip back so you know I'm not like making this up. John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus was therefore was saying to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now think about this for a second. Herod, by discarding the truth, is completely free to make up whatever truth he wants to make up. Is he free? Um, Jesus would say no. Because of all that Herod, I mean, do I keep calling him Herod? Can you track with me? Yeah. Pilot, Pilot. 
all that Pilate has is what limited feeble like strength he has, what limited knowledge he has, and and the the raging of the crowd around him. That's all he has. And he ends up becoming a slave to the treachery of the Jews. But what Jesus is saying is that if you know the truth and you and and, and you abide in the truth, is that, is that what he says in 31? Yeah, if you abide in my word, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yeah, it's really important for us to understand this. You young people, wherever you're sitting, which is everybody younger than me, um, when I was younger, I was always like, man, the truth is just like a bummer, right? There's all these things I'm supposed to do and not supposed to do, and God is just this like kind of like angry guy up in heaven that keeps me from having fun. Anybody ever feel that way besides me? There's about seven, about 300 of you that probably should be pastor instead of me then. Um, Jesus says just the opposite. It's the truth that's going to make you free. It's the truth that's going to like put you on this path of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everything else is just going to destroy you. Everything else is just going to lead you astray. You're not really going to be free. You're just going to be a slave to public opinion. You need to be anchored in the truth of who Jesus is and in his word. And then, and as you follow him, you'll find life. But Pilate, on the other hand, like has nothing else. And we, I won't, just so I can finish my alliteration. So he brings up a plan. And he brings this criminal before them. And he says, hey, I've got this. My translation reads robber. It should read insurrectionist or terrorist or um, it's really, I mean, the word could mean both, but as you look at the other Gospels, it's clearly like terrorist is the right word. I've got this terrorist. His name's Barabbas. It's my tradition to honor the release of captivity, like from captivity or in the Passover, to release a criminal for you. Which criminal do you want? Jesus, the king of the Jews, or Barabbas, the terrorist? Oh, we want Barabbas. That's where our hearts are at, Right? the insurrectionist, the one who rises up against all authority, and they crucify the one who would give them life. So Aaron, as you come forward, come up to like close us in song, like you know, here's my challenge to us, you know, as we kind of navigate through this, and again, we're going to be talking about these things more. But just realize that Jesus' kingdom is greater than all. It it doesn't come about through human, through human efforts. It comes about as we live in and manifest and cling to the truth of who Jesus is. So we do that corporately as his people, as we do that individually. And while we should give ourselves to seeking the good of our like, society by seeing just like, laws and politicians and um, elected, and, like, ultimately, God's plans are going forward that, that we, we don't need to worry about the raging of the nations that he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish um, in us and through us as his people. And we can have confidence in that. As the disciples are watching Jesus like be taken captive by Pilate and be, be betrayed by Judas and denied by Peter and led to his death, like, they, lost sight, they lost sight of that and they couldn't believe it. But we know how the story ends. And so we should. We should cling to the truth of, the truth of that 
in this uncertain age. So Aaron, why don't you close us, then I'll close us in prayer.